This book of Titus is an awesome book, packed into three chapters. is just so much uh, good stuff, so, ma- so many important things. And last week, as we looked at chapter 2, and we saw that beautiful section there at the end of chapter 2, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works." looking for the Lord's return. And on Sunday, when we're in 1 Thessalonians 4, we talked about this some more, and it's definitely, we should always have one eye on the sky. We should always be believing and expecting that he can come back at any time. But notice how he points out that, that Jesus redeemed us from every lawless deed, and that he wants to purify us and make us a... Uh, as the King James says, a peculiar people, but it's really a, a people who are special for him, as our version says it, purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. And so God has a plan for us that means that we are to be special. And what is special about us is that we are zealous for good works. We really want to do what's right. And you can tell if you're a child of God based on at least partly on whether or not you want to do things right. The reason we come to Christ is because we realize we haven't been doing things right. That's what the Bible calls repentance. I'm due for a change of direction. And so the reason that he appeared in his grace was so that our lives would change. And throughout the book of Titus, we see this, but I wanted to to remind you of that and drive that point home because... He doesn't just save us to get us to heaven. He wants to save us now as well. And so salvation definitely means, hey, get to go to heaven when you die, but I'm not dead yet. (laughs) And, And I want him to be saving me right now and turning my life around and making my life work. And that's why for Titus, it's always... Here's what God has done, and here's what goes along with that in someone's life. And so Paul, um, Paul is reminding Titus of this, and then he tells him in verse 15, speak these things, exhort, parakaleo, encourage, come alongside, and rebuke, that is convince people of this with all authority, with God's authority, and don't let anyone despise you. If you're If you're speaking God's word, you can know that it's true. And so he's saying, don't be timid about telling people what God says um, and sharing his word with them. As long as you do it in the way that he does it, that's not an excuse for just beating people over the head with the Bible because the whole point is God's grace and what that does in our lives. And yet we should be reminding each other of these things and of this transforming work that the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. So now in verse th- chapter 3, as he continues along these lines, he says, while you're speaking to them, encouraging them, and convincing them, also remind them 
to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. And Paul talks about this a lot. And again, it's important to remember that he's talking in a historical context where it was a really evil government. You're talking about Nero's Rome. And yet, he's reminding them, and we have other passages that you're familiar with, like Romans 13, where he's saying, fit in as a part of the political system. Realize that they have influence over you. Realize that you know, you, it's not that they own you, but it's that if you are going to have the kind of life that God wants you to have, it starts with recognizing that you are functioning within a system and there are various authorities that are placed there. And you can argue whether those authorities ought to be there. And we often gripe about you know, the stupid laws or these cr- this crazy government or this president or whatever. But the truth is, that's who is in a position of authority. And you see it from the national scene all the way down to our local city council. And you can... There's the old expression, you can't fight City Hall. And it's true. I mean, you can sneak around, try to avoid them a little bit, but in general, I mean, like the city of, of Laguna Woods, who, which our parking lot out here is in Laguna Woods, they came and all of a sudden a few weeks ago and made a big thing about our parking and our signs. And, our, and it was really, any thinking person would look at it and go, that's just ridiculous. But... Rather than, I mean, we could have filed a lawsuit against them or whatever, but even though it was like Steve Bailey's last day before a missions trip, it was easier for him to go spend six hours at City Hall and get the permits that we needed so that we didn't have to deal with it than it would have been to you know, resist and start a, a campaign for, you know, let's get signatures and let's overthrow this you know, administration and all that. Paul was all about, what's going to get the job done for you? What is really going to make your life what God wants it to be? And a part of that is having priorities and just recognizing certain things are the way they are. You're never going to really change them. So fly under the radar, do what you need to do, throw a few bones to the government on occasion, and, and just recognize that that's your piece that's at stake. That if you, if you want to fight with the government, you'll never run out of things to fight about. And so if that's where you want to live your life, if you're called to be a political gadfly or something, okay, fine. If that's the way you want to spend your life, go ahead and do it. But Paul would say, I have more important fish to fry than to go address the corruption in government. And therefore, the sensible thing is just realize that you're subject to them. You are under their um, authority. And God has reasons for putting us under authority, sometimes even under the authority of someone who's unrighteous. And so, again, he's saying, tell the people, just be subject. Just be good citizens. Just recognize that for society to function, you cannot just fight. You can't just say, well, I'm free. Christ has made me free, so I'm going to do whatever I want. You can do that, but 
there's generally a price to pay, and it ends up being a lot more trouble that way. I remember years ago at a, another church I used to work at, um, <laughs> we were constantly fighting with the city, and, and we would do things. One time we, we were going to build a, an amphitheater and a, with a hill that made a ramp going up to the top of a two-story building. And we did it without um, any permits, and they came, and we tried to act like, what? You know, and it's just like, then we had to flatten the whole thing and start it all over. And a lot of times, it's just easier. It's, it's not, he's not making a big moral statement here because there's no doubt about it. Most officials, most people who are ambitious enough to put themselves in that position are not really good people. Very few people are in work for the government because of this gratuitous heart that they have. Altruism isn't usually the motive. But leave that stuff to somebody else, he would say, and just realize you have a race to run. You have a life to live. And so just go along with the program and, and uh, things will be better for you. And so he says, uh, do that, obey, <laughs> And, and be ready for every good work. And this is kind of a funny shift right in the middle of a sentence. But I think the point is that if you are sneaking around and focusing on everything that's wrong in society and everything, then you're not going to get anything done yourself. You're going to be hindered from doing that which is good. But this is a great basic principle. Be ready for every good work. Now, how are you ready for every good work? First of all, you have to be committed to want to do what's good, as he was just saying in the previous chapter, and as he goes on and, and elucidates on, in this chapter as well. But once you're saying, yeah, I want to do what's good. I want to do what's right. Now there's some planning involved. Because typically... You know, to do something good or to do something well, you can't do it flying by the seat of your pants. You cannot do good just as the opportunity comes up. And a lot of people have a really good heart, but they're never actually able to do anything with it because they don't have discipline. They haven't prepared. So Paul talks about this a lot in, in talking about giving. And he says, look, Save up your money in advance, take a collection regularly so that you'll have money on hand that when there's a need that comes up that you weren't expecting, you don't have to go raise money for some cause. It's already there and you are ready to participate and you're ready to give. And it's, it's just a basic principle of life that the way you live your life today is going to affect what you're going to be able to do tomorrow. And as, I, you know, as I've talked before, a lot of times you hear, oh, a missions trip, I'd love to do that. But for the most part, the people who are able to do something like that are people who plan ahead. And they budget themselves in a certain way, or hopefully they don't just max out their credit cards to go on a missions trip. But but they're ready. They have some time that they can get off work or they've, they've got to a position in life where they're able to take time off and they have the funds to be able to do it or they have friends who want to support them at it. Um, all of those kinds of things are a part of the discipline of life that causes us to be ready 
to do good when an opportunity comes up to do good. It would be um, just today we heard that, that um, there was a need to purchase some Bibles for Mexico, some children's Bibles and some other Bibles. Now, I forget what, seven or $800 or something like that. And we have a missions board and we have money that has been allocated for basic missions. But we don't have to... Um, Steve sent an email out to all the missions board members and goes, hey, what do you guys think? There's this need. And I'm sure by now everyone has responded yes, and it's a done deal. We don't have to come to church tonight and go, we need Bibles for Mexico, so dig down deep and you know we're going to pass the plate a few times and try to come up with that money. Um, it's, it's about being ready. It's about being prepared. And that applies to each of us personally, and it applies to us as a, as a body as well, to think ahead, to plan for opportunities that may come up, and to live our lives in such a way that we are ready to do good works. The best things that you'll ever do are, th- are things that come up as, sometimes as a surprise opportunity. And so you cannot plan for everything. So you have to plan to live your life in such a way that you're ready when an opportunity comes up that you can jump on it. Does that make sense? So he's, he's throwing that thought in there, and it's something that Paul talks about in several places. But in here, he's tying it in, ironically, with just deal with the government so that you're ready. I mean, I always tell people, you should all have a passport because if God gives you an opportunity to go somewhere really quickly and you're like, oh, I'd love to do that, but I don't have a passport, it helps to have a passport. And so those are the kinds of things that in going along with the system, we can be prepared for opportunities that come up. When opportunity comes knocking, you're like, yeah, I live my life with some space. I live my life with some surplus. I don't spend every penny that I make. I don't live constantly in debt. Why? Because if an opportunity to do something special for the Lord comes up, I want to be able to do it without thinking, oh, let's see, how can I shuffle my resources in order to participate in this? And then he goes on and says, more things to teach them. Teach them to speak evil of no one. Wow, I love that. I mean, I would love to be able to do it more more effectively. Billy Graham and their organization, when they were starting the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, one of the things that they committed to as one of their core values is, we will not speak badly about any other ministry. Now, I get it. There are some ministries that are doing bad things, and maybe somebody is called to speak prophetically against that. And, but, but I don't know. I, personally, I like the feeling of going, let's just not talk bad about others. Let's just not speak bad about other people. Let's not speak bad about other churches and organizations and things like that. It, but you go, but wait a minute. I mean, people need to know if something's really off the wall. You know what? If we're telling the truth and if we're being a good example then that in itself will declare the flip side of that. And, and so our calling really is 
not to talk down on anyone else, but let's be an example. And people will want to be like us. Um, and so it, it, it's interesting that he puts that in there. Don't speak evil of anyone. And tell them to be peaceable. Tell them to be people that know how to avoid battles. People who want to make peace. There are some people that it, it's almost impossible to be at odds with them. It's almost impossible. You know, there are certain people that if somebody says, I really have a problem with that person, I go, I know it's you. Because I don't know anyone who has a problem with that person. And, he, and here Paul is just saying, tell people to be that guy. To be the one who is always bringing peace. Who's always an influence of calm. That when he walks into the situation, when she shows up, everyone feels like it's going to be okay because of the way that they carry the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. Um, be gentle. Show all humility to all men. Not just to people. You know, it's easy to be humble with people who are above you. Or, you know, there are people who know more than you or have more than you. Everyone's humble with people like that, generally. Um, but he goes, no, just be humble, period, with everyone. Whether they deserve it or not, that's not what it's about. This is what defines who you are. And, and so he says, be peaceable, be gentle, be humble. Great reminders. For, Why? <laughs> For we ourselves were also once stupid. <laughs> you know, and, and it's kind of, I think he's being sort of sly here because as he talks about some of these sins, they are things that on occasion we still struggle with as Christians, let's face it. But he wants to say it in a nice way, and so he goes, you know what, you guys used to be, some of you were this way, and and the word once really isn't a good translation of the word that's there. It's really the idea of sometimes. So it's not that this was always who you were or that this was a one-time thing, neither one. It's that you've had your days when you were foolish. You've done stupid things. And remember what he's tying it into, being humble, being gentle, being peaceable, the key is to see in other people yourself, your own frailty. I mean, that's what humility is, basically, is to look at someone who's doing something stupid and to go, I've done stupid things. And, and so the more stupid things that you do, the better you ought to handle other people, but usually it's the opposite. Sometimes the people who are the most humble and the most gracious to others are sometimes people who really have it together themselves. And the reason is, my sin on somebody else looks really bad. When I see someone who has the same problem that I do, I can be ruthless with them. Because it's a way of hating myself through someone else or believing that, okay, here's finally I found someone who's a little worse than I am. Praise God. And so, you know, it's remembering who you are, what you are capable of, is a key to this. And so he says, sometimes you guys were foolish, you were disobedient, you were deceived. 
Have you ever been wrong? Have you ever been fooled? You were serving various lusts and pleasures. You were living in malice, wanting to hurt people sometimes, lashing out at them. You were jealous, envious. You were hateful. And you were hating one another, even the people that you were hanging out with you were hating. And and so Paul is letting Titus know when you're explaining to people how they ought to live, remind them of who they are. And this is hard because on the one hand, I want to forget my sin. Current sins, past sins, the way I used to live. And I'm thankful for God's forgiveness. But at the same time, when it comes to understanding others, it helps to just dig back enough to say, I've been there. I know what that's like. And, and I really think that a key to us handling people wisely and kindly is for us to be able to somehow project ourselves into their place. And I, you know, recently with some people that I was having difficulties with, um, as I was just spending time with the Lord, God kind of transported me in a way where I started thinking of those people and everything that they've been through and all that they've struggled with and, and what it is that brought them to the point where they are the way that they are right now. And putting myself in their place really helped me to have a perspective where it was more understanding. But it also brought up hurts in my own life and issues that I've had so that I could connect with them. In a way, to, in, in one way, that's partly what the incarnation was about. That's partly what Jesus becoming one of us was about. Because the one thing, I mean, God knows everything. But the one thing that God couldn't know by experience was what it was like to be us. And so he took human flesh on himself, and he actually took, in the final analysis, took our sins upon himself, bore that entire burden in, the, in this substitution of the atonement that then allowed him to die for our sins and pay the penalty for our sins. And I think in a real, on a deep level, if you think about this, for our being able to imitate him and to participate even in his sufferings, a part of that involves us making a substitutionary replacement whereby we can put ourselves in someone else's place and understand what it's like to be them. And it's so much easier to then show forgiveness. As Jesus, hanging on the cross, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But he also said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He, prior to that, was in the garden, sweating like drops of blood and going, If there's some other way, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours. And going through that suffering, for the first time, perhaps, if it hadn't happened at other times in his life, it happened, it culminated in the garden and on the cross, 
Jesus knew what it felt like to be in agony and to not understand and to not completely have a handle on things. And as a result, I suspect that as he hung on the cross and he looked in the eyes of that mob and he realized what it's like to be afraid, to be confused, to be caught up in a frenzy, never sinned, but he understood. And so praying for forgiveness, it was based on him being able to put himself in their place and in our place and to say, there's this connection that's been made and I understand how they could do what they're doing. I get this. And they don't realize what they're doing and so then to intercede on their behalf. And I, and I think that the more we can relate our own lives to other people's lives, the more we can enter into that kind of substitution and that kind of, of empathy that allows us, allows us, allows us, <laughs> that was a word I just coined, on purpose, but no, that allows, that permits us <laughs> to, to look at someone and not just be completely disgusted by what they're doing, but to look at others and see ourselves in that person. That on, a, on our worst day, at times when maybe nobody saw it, we're not that much different than everyone else. And so that should cause us to be rather than hostile or impatient, it should cause us to be gentle and peaceful and, and caring and loving toward others. And so he goes, Paul goes, Titus, tell the people this. <laughs> what is on their heart? What is in their background? What have they done? It's it's probably what was operating when Jesus dealt with the woman who was caught in adultery. And as they wanted to stone her, we're picking up stones, and Jesus said, okay, yeah, that's the law, you can stone her, but let's start with the one that doesn't have any sin. And let he that is without sin cast the first stone. And then he began to write in the dirt. We don't know what he wrote in the dirt, but it said that as he wrote, the people one by one dropped their rocks and walked away, starting with the eldest, going down to the youngest. Now, Pastor Chuck has speculated, and once Chuck speculates, it becomes doctrine, and now everyone else teaches that this is actually what happened. We don't know if it happened or not, but Chuck is thinking, maybe he started writing down their names in age order, and then some of their sins. Maybe he wrote, you know, Shlomo here, room 419, and that was his hotel room when he was doing this, or, you know, and, and worked his way down, and they're like, whoa. And may God help us to drop our stones because we haven't forgotten what we are capable of, what we have done, what we have thought of doing or fantasized about what we would have done had we thought we could get away with it, hey, we're not that different. And the cool thing is, as he goes on to say, facing your failure and facing your sin is not and should not be a threat. The only reason why we don't want to face our sin 
is because we really don't believe in grace. We're really hoping that we can be good enough based on our own efforts. And he goes on to make it clear, no, that's not the case. So past failure, current failure, future failure should just cause us to go easy on others. And if you want, Jesus said, that mercy will be shown to you based on how you show mercy. So you realize you need mercy, you learn to be merciful. And it has an amazingly transforming effect when you let that happen. The only reason to be stubborn and hard on people is because you're afraid to look in the mirror yourself. You're fooling yourself. And so he, he lays that out and says, but, verse 4, and, I, and I, love, I love these verses, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, and the word there, the same word, epiphany, you know, all of a sudden a light clicks on and you know it. And that's what makes the difference between who we are without Christ, who we used to be until he saved us. What dawns on us, the epiphany that happens, is the kindness and the love of God epiphanied, appeared, shined forth. And remember, it was just back in the previous chapter, in chapter 2, verse 13, where he said, we're looking for that blessed hope and the glorious epiphany of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When Jesus shows up, love and kindness is what happens. When you see him for who he is, it changes you. It sets you free. And we are all bound up with all sorts of chains and ropes and straps that keep us from being free. And what we are enslaved to is our, own, our old way of life, the habits and sins that we've picked up, the guilt that we feel from the past, the inability that we have now to do everything or to be everything that we want to be. And all of that is choking us, just squeezing the life out of us. It's ruining our lives and the one thing that shines a light and sets us free is God's love and his kindness. But God, you know, Romans 5, 8, but God showed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And you can tell if someone understands this based on whether or not their representation is kindness and love. And if I'm having a problem being kind and loving, then really my problem is I need to take another look at the epiphany. I need to see Jesus more clearly because looking at him changes everything. It it's what sets you free to live the life that he's called us to live. And I I just am so moved and touched by the thought of looking back to where I was and realizing what happened in my life when the kindness and the love of God shined on me. And that makes me want to just 
to, to beg others to see his kindness and his love because that's what will fix you. Now, when somebody's messed up their life, a lot of times the last thing you want to do is be kind and loving to them. And in our flesh, we think, boy, the last thing they need is kindness and love. They need a boot in the rear end is what they need. You know, because that's what we think. But did that ever fix you, really? I mean, all of the put-downs and all the pain and all the hurt that you've endured because of your own sin, did it ever really fix you or did it just make you a little sneakier, more careful? Um, it's over in Romans, Paul says, that we discover, I'm talking about the old life, and then he says, but it's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. And kindness is always what brings us to repentance. It's that love shining on us. Anything other than that, when you treat people badly because they are acting badly, all it does is start a fight. All it does is create a greater problem and a greater issue. It, it accelerates, it accentuates that which is already happening. And the only thing that could have interrupted that life of foolishness, disobedience, deceit, Lust, malice, envy, hate. The only thing that could interrupt that is the kindness and the love of God. And that has shined forth. The epiphany is there. The story has been told. We see it throughout his word. On almost every page, we see this emphasis. And when are we going to realize that if we live that way, that epiphany can come through us and we can be instruments of change in the lives of others. We can't make someone else change. But if we have a shot at influence, it's going to be through shining forth kindness and love. That's what transformed all of our lives and that's what will transform anyone else's life. Now you might go, ah, nobody was ever that kind or loving to me and I became a Christian and I'm, you know, I got saved without all that stuff. I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying that's impossible, but I'm saying that it seems like what the scripture teaches is until your heart is touched by that love and kindness, you might be persuaded to an intellectual position, but have you really endured regeneration? Have you, have you actually endured that supernatural change? I, there are a lot of people who struggle because they're like, yeah, I became a Christian, but um, nothing's changed. I, I can't change. And they're trying to change themselves. And I sometimes think, man, I, and, and, I don't, and I don't usually approach people and go, you know what the truth is? I don't think you're really saved. But, but it might be true. But what I try to do is, what I want to emphasize is, you need to see God's love more. And so rather than threaten them with the idea that, oh, you might not even be a Christian, they'll always be able to argue that, or they'll just get totally defeated if you tell them that. So what I would rather do is just shine forth the love and the kindness of God. And at some point, you see the light of that, and it will change your life. And kind, loving people have been overpowered 
by that light that Jesus Christ shines into their life through the Holy Spirit. And, and I'm not going to start pointing fingers at who has it and who isn't, but you know. And you can see it even in yourself sometimes on a day-to-day basis. So let that light in and that kindness and love is going to change you and then it'll change others too. But I love that Paul makes that the pivotal point. But here's what happens. Love and kindness got in the way of the path that you were on. And so I'd ask for each of us, and I think we should ask this regularly, what path am I on right now? Am I off the path of kindness and love? Maybe I need another epiphany. Maybe I just need to go spend some time with him. Maybe I need to ask the Holy Spirit to do a fresh work in my life, to just refocus all that God is and all that he has done so that I can once again appreciate who he is in my life and get my priorities straight. And so he says, this didn't happen by works of righteousness, which we have done. But according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration, new birth, and renewing of the Holy Spirit. He said, any change in your life that's a legitimate, life-lasting change happened because you began to get love and kindness. You saw it. And it wasn't what you did And it's still not what you do. It is not about doing the right things so that God will fix your life. There's nothing you can do that can fix anything. Most of the time, I had a friend who who pictured himself as a mechanic. But we used to talk about, you know, someone would say, you know, yeah, I need to find somebody to work on my car. And this guy offered to help. And we would say, well, I guess it depends. Do you need it worked on or do you need it fixed? (laughs) And so we're good at working on things, but are we really good at fixing things? No, we really aren't. And so he's again saying, it's not about what you do. God's not trying to get you to do good things so that more good things will come about. It's only when you stop and you see what he has done that it has any kind of influence on your life whatsoever. And so it's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but it's according to his mercy. We didn't deserve it. He saved us. We didn't save ourselves. We didn't turn over a new leaf. We didn't take a fresh start. We didn't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. The only reason, if you've been saved, is simply because of God's mercy. There wasn't something that he saw in you that he was like, wow, that's impressive. I could really use that. Um, I mean, if that was true, then people, well, I won't name names, but there are, some, there are some people in our society that, man, they're amazing, the talent that they have. And so if God was all about getting good deals and talented people, he would have picked people other than us. You know, quite often, and there are some great athletes who are Christians, but there are a lot more great athletes who aren't. <laughs> and the Christians often are the ones who are the second-rate players, 
That's the way Paul described it in 1 Corinthians when he said, not many wise men, not many nobles, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Why does God choose people like us instead of people who are amazing? Um, because he wants to get the glory. And people who are amazing don't realize that they need help. They're not looking for mercy. Now, God can transform us and do amazing things through us. And I mean, I'm looking at the people who are in this room, and there's some really amazing people here, but what brought you to Christ was not the amazing parts of you. He just wants to work in you and bring those parts out. But frankly, across the board, the most amazing thing about us is that God would use us at all because he does it by his mercy, not by what we do. He washes us and rebirths us. Regeneration means to be born again. And he renews us. The word there for renewing of the Holy Spirit is a word that means renovation. It's, he makes us over. He, he takes those damaged parts of us and he makes them useful. And everything that the world has done to tear us down, he repairs and, and builds us up. And it, if you never get to the point where you realize you need a renovation, then you're probably never going to ask for one. But he says, man, God has done that for us. Now, you also may feel like, boy, I wish he'd do it for me. Well, hey, back off a little bit and consider maybe he has done it for you to a great extent. Renovations are a process. It takes time, as we've learned here with the things that we're doing on the church. It takes a lot of time. And there's an awful lot of demolition that happens before construction can begin. But God is working in your life, and if you're his child, that renovation process is already underway. Don't look at the artist's rendering and compare where you are right now to what it's supposed to look like after it's finished. Because if so, then die, because you're done. <laughs> you're not going to look like you're supposed to look until you're in heaven. But recognize that God is in the renovation business, and that should be encouraging to you. And he does it by his Holy Spirit. And as he says, renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That word for poured out means gushed. It's referring to an overflow that just, that just overwhelms someone or something, that kind of gushing forth. And it's, it's, the, it's the type of thing that, in relationship to the Holy Spirit, that when Jesus promised that when he gave the Holy Spirit, that it would bubble forth from us, would gush out from us with these springs of living water coming out. God doesn't just want to take care of us. He wants to just overwhelm us with his spirit so that what flows forth in the overflow is this amazing functioning of the spirit in love and service and kindness and gentleness and mercy and grace. And it's why the disciples weren't ready, even though they were saved, until the day of Pentecost, they weren't really ready to get out there and minister, because Jesus told them, go wait 
for the promise of the Father. Go wait, and after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you'll be witnesses of me. The Holy Spirit, the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit was always with us. When we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit is placed in us. And when we, when we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, to receive what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is really, I think, a term that means the first time you're really overflowed by the Spirit. When that happens, power is a result. And when you're not feeling power, it's a good time to question. I don't see much overflowing from my life. I'm barely squeaking by. And I can do certain things, but when you talk about gentleness and grace and love and mercy and, and having enough to share with others, um, sometimes we need to look and go, have we really experienced that overflowing of the Holy Spirit? In other words, have I gone to God and spent time with him and said, I want everything that you have for me. I will allow you to do in my life anything that you want to do, even if it makes me feel weird, even if it makes me look stupid, even if people think I'm a fanatic. I want everything that you have for me. And Jesus said that if you ask for that, you're going to receive it. And so it's not about, well, you know, do I need to speak in tongues to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? Or do I need to go to a special place or have somebody lay hands on me? No, there were people who were baptized in the Holy Spirit in the Bible who spoke in tongues. There are some who we don't think they did or we don't know that they did. There are others who had hands laid on them and they were prayed for. There are others who that wasn't the case. God works individually with all of us. But if... He isn't gushing forth from our lives. And something's wrong. And, and I believe that being filled with the Spirit is, as Paul said in Ephesians, don't be drunk with wine where it is excess, but be literally be being filled with the Spirit. And so this is something that should be on an ongoing basis. We need to let him pour the Spirit all over us, upon us, epi, so that we can gush forth with that which he wants us to do. There are some people who have at one time had a great experience with God, maybe at a retreat or something, and then they're kind of over it. No, this is something, we need retreat every day. We need this constant overflowing of the Spirit in our lives if we are going to depict and reflect who he is and what he wants us to do. And for some of us, we know it's time to really wait on the Spirit. We know that it's time to go get alone with God. And maybe you've had an experience with the Holy Spirit and maybe you haven't. Maybe your relationship with God has been primarily in your head um, and you need it to get into your heart and to overflow. And if that's the case, you don't have anything else more important to do than to go and spend some time with God and ask for that work of the Spirit in your life. Because without that, nothing else matters. Nothing else will work. You'll be constantly frustrated. You'll just make God look bad by going around telling people you're a Christian and they don't see anything gushing forth from your life except bitterness and, and arrogance and anger and all those types of things. So for the disciples, it was like, okay, guys, you need to save the world. 
But it's more important that you go sit in a little room for a month and a half and wait until the Holy Spirit is gushing forth from your life. And you'll know when it happens, and that'll happen. Now, there are people who want to argue about this. I, I get in discussions about this all the time. Well, wait a minute. I think the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens at the moment of salvation. Um, I think filled with the Spirit is a commitment. It's something that God does. It's not something that you can necessarily see. I feel like the Spirit is just bubbling around inside me, but other people just don't notice it. And you get into all these things, and one of my favorite people ever uh, Reuben Archer Torrey, R.A. Torrey, he, he was an incredible pastor, brilliant man, an attorney, an evangelist, and he was the first president of Moody Bible Institute and the first president of Biola, which was Bible Institute of Los Angeles at the time, but an amazing and a brilliant man, and he used to, one of his best-known books is called The Baptism of the Holy Spirit, um, and he, when Moody would send him out to speak, D.L. Moody, he always would say, you know, he, he said, Moody only asked me to ever preach two sermons. One of them was, how do I know that the Bible is the Word of God? And the other one is, how can I be filled with the Spirit? And when Moody was speaking over in Australia one time, some pastors, some Baptist ministers started arguing with him and saying, no, you've got the terminology all wrong. You shouldn't call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What you're talking about is the filling of the Holy Spirit, and you should call it the filling. You shouldn't use the term baptism. And, and Tori said, I'll never forget this. He, he, said, he said, okay, well, look, here's the deal. Whatever you call it, it's obvious that some people have a power from God working in their lives, and some people don't. And he said, I would rather have the right thing with the wrong name than the wrong thing with the right name any day. <laughs> and that's really it. Don't worry, about the, don't worry about the wording. Don't worry about terminology. Worry about going to God and saying, fill me with your spirit. Gush over me. Do this work. I need you. By, and it's not by your works. It's by his mercy. God, I need you you to do this work in my life and you go well no I, I had yeah i'm with you i did that last week now do it tomorrow do it tonight if you need if you feel that need and don't ever settle for anything other than the holy spirit being poured out abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He says, ask and I'll send you the Holy Spirit. In order that, verse 7, having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We become heirs. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We have this inheritance. Everything that he has for us is being given to us by grace for free. I've known certain people who stood to inherit a certain amount of assets. I've watched some people just see their parents fritter it away, and at one point they were thinking, someday I'm going to be rich, and they realize they aren't. But if you know that you've got you know, wealth on the way at some point, it affects the way you worry about life because you're like, you know what, eventually... 
my rich uncle's going to (laughs) die. Eventually, my parents, they can't last forever. And so on that day, yeah, I'll cry, but I'll also pay off my student loans, you know? (laughs) I mean, and that's, but he's using that image of being an heir. And in those days, you, you couldn't do anything with your inheritance until they did die. And that's why it was such an insult when the prodigal son said to his dad, give me my inheritance now. What he was saying was, dad, I wish you were dead. But Jesus died so that we could be heirs. And right now we have that possession. Right now he has given us everything that really matters. It's already ours. And so he goes, realize how wealthy you are. Realize how blessed you are. Understand that. And it's all by his grace. And then he says, this is a faithful saying. You can trust this. And these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So he says, harp on this all the time. God's grace, your inheritance, the Holy Spirit. Just constantly talk about that. And in that context, tell people to do good things. And But it's not in the spirit in which an awful lot of people sometimes tell us to do good things. So often we are told that we need to be good or God's going to be angry with us. Or we need to be good to express our gratefulness to God. Or we need to be good so that you know people will then be drawn to the Lord by our example. And all of these things are burdens on us as to why we need to be good. Paul is so practical here. He says, tell everybody who believes that you should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to God. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Nothing makes God richer. Nothing makes him happier. Nothing makes God you know, any less or more perfect. But the reason God tells us to do good is because this is good for people. He's going, if they believe that God is who he says he is, then tell them, I'm telling you, if you do things his way, it's going to be good for you and good for others. We should never do good works because we feel compelled to. But when I realize that if I do something good for you, it's going to make you feel good and it's going to make me feel good too. And I, and I realize that when I stop some of the habitual sins that I, that I am so victimizing myself and others with, when I can start being more gentle instead of more mean, when I realize it's going to be good for everybody. Now, either you believe God and doing what's right is going to make you and everyone else better, or you don't believe God and now you're showing somehow you missed the epiphany. He has shined his light on you but have you responded to that light? John chapter 1 talks about Jesus, the Word, becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And, and, but he, he talks about him as being the true light that lights every person who comes into the world. So the Logos, the Word, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. 
The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life. The life was the light of men. The light shined in darkness. They didn't get it. And then there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to bear witness of the light. He wasn't the light. He came to tell us about the light that all men through him might believe. And he says, that was the true light that lights everyone who comes into the world. So the problem isn't on God's part. He has shown you kindness and love and grace. The question is, do you believe him? Do I believe him? Are we going to follow up on that and go, you know what? It makes me want to do good because that brings good. That me doing good is going to make my life better. And it's going to enrich the lives of everyone around me. Now, if you believe that, you want the Holy Spirit to empower you to do that, to grow that in your life. But if you really don't think that doing good matters, you don't think there's really a benefit to it, then somebody's going to have to manipulate you to try to get you to do good. If, if you believe what the Bible says, for instance, about how important it is to gather together with other believers in fellowship. If you really believe that, nobody's going to have to browbeat you to come to church or to get involved in a home fellowship, for instance. If you really believe what the Scripture says about money, and that if you give money sacrificially to the Lord, that He is going to multiply it, that He's going to bless you as a result of that, nobody's going to have to get up there and beg you to give money. Nobody's going to have to plead with you and tell you, oh, God's about broke, and if we don't get this money by this time, oh, man, we're sunk. Are you kidding me? If, if 20% of the people in the church just believed what God says about money, we'd have more money than we'd know what to do with. And that's what he's saying. Let people know, no, this is for you. This isn't for God. This isn't like, come on, Jesus hung on a cross for you. The least you can do is throw 10 bucks in the offering for him. He doesn't need that. He doesn't, he doesn't even get excited about it. The only reason God gets excited about when we give is because he knows that we're going to get back much more than we give. And when we let go of something that's valuable to us, like our time or our resources, um, then he knows he's getting to our heart. And he loves that. Why? Because he's rich? Because somebody will build a bigger building for him, for his glory? He's not impressed. The most impressive churches that are out there are not churches that give glory to God. They're, for the most part, they're mosques. God doesn't care about that kind of stuff. But he knows what's going to happen when people believe him. And good things will happen. And see, God picks his spots in how he intervenes in people's lives. And there are times when God comes personally and really provides for me and, and blesses me. And I always appreciate those times, but frankly, that's not most of the time. Usually when I am encouraged, it's because somebody takes the time to encourage me. Usually when I'm blessed, it's not because God drops manna from heaven, it's because somebody goes, hey, let me buy you lunch. And in every way, see, that's what he wants us to understand. 
And that's the reason he cares about why we're good. Because he loves us and he wants us to feel what happens when good is done to you. And he wants us to feel what happens when we do good for others. And if we would believe this and we would get this, we'd be falling all over each other trying to bless each other, trying to be good to each other, trying to give and, and, and share and care. And as soon as I do that, not only are my needs being met, but, but I'm being used by God as well. And it doesn't make me angry. It doesn't bum me out. It doesn't make me bitter and resentful. It causes me to go, I'm just blessed to be able to do it. Easy to say, not as easy to do sometimes, but here Paul is just emphasizing to Titus, tell him to be careful to maintain good works because these things are good and profitable to people. And then he goes on, whew, almost out of time. But avoid foolish, the Greek word there is moros, from which we get moron. Avoid moronic disputes genealogies, trying to go back and, you know, it's not just referring to tracing your roots, but what he's talking about is trying to recreate what's happened in the past. Okay, now we're mad at each other. Now let's go back and dissect this whole thing. And I wish I had a tape recorder because I know you said this and this and, and no, what I said was this and, well, no, what I meant was this. And it's like living your life trying to untangle the past. Once you accept the fact that we're all complete messes without God, then you really don't need to go back into the details of it. And I love it. I heard Greg Laurie a week ago or so on the radio, and he was saying, and I've shared this with a bunch of people since, he goes, there's a reason why when you drive a car, you have a big, huge windshield, and you have a little tiny rearview mirror, because he said, you need to look at what's ahead. Once in a while, you can glance at the past. might be a good thing um, in case there's lights blinking. But basically, if you live your life looking back, you're going to run into something moving ahead. And so he's just going, don't waste your time on that kind of stuff. On, again, moronic arguments. What kind of an argument is moronic? Well, one about something that's already happened that you can't change. This is stupid. Genealogies, trying to track it down. Contentions, fighting, strivings about the law, being picky about, well, technically, you know, let's both bring our lawyers here and let's just figure out exactly. He's going, no, you don't need that. Now, he's not talking about the Old Testament law, probably because he's speaking to the Cretans who are primarily Gentiles. So he's probably talking about people who are just constantly arguing over who's right and who's wrong, and they want to bring their lawyers into it. Don't waste your time on that stuff. Why? They are unprofitable and useless. You're not going to get anywhere. If we could look at the amount of time we've wasted in our lives, <laughs> fighting and arguing, disagreeing and having our feelings hurt and all that kind of stuff, I mean, we're just frittering our lives away doing that kind of thing. And I've heard people who you know, tell us that they're on vacation and they had this big blow up in their marriage and all this stuff happened and nobody's speaking to each other and everything. It's like one thing, when I hear people are on, going on vacation, I always pray, God, help them not to waste even one minute arguing. 
you can argue when you get back home. You know? Then you can go to work and go, do, go your own way, and you can find your own space. Vacations are in tight quarters, but life is in tight quarters, and life is too short to be wasting your time being at odds with people you care about. And we've got to learn to have priorities and to go, you know, I feel like arguing with you about this, but you know what? Probably not going to accomplish anything, and it's going to chew up a bunch of time and energy. And, and so he's just going, tell people to quit being so moronic with the energy that they put into disagreements. And then he goes on and says, reject. The word um, reject means to avoid, or literally it's kind of, para means next to, and iteo, which is the second half of the word para, iteo, means to make an excuse. And, and so, it, you know, it, it, what he's kind of saying is when there's a divisive person, the Greek word there is heretic, but it's the only place it's used in the New Testament. So it's probably not talking about heresy specifically in doctrine. It's just talking about people who are divisive. There are some people who just like to argue. And he just said, don't waste your time doing, being in moronic arguments. And now he says, when you find somebody who's that kind of a person, after first and second admonition, just avoid them. Come up with an excuse why you can avoid that conversation. There, there are certain people that you can only have a certain level of relationship with them. And that's what he's saying. It, it's not a reject them, like I reject you. That's going to start a moronic fight. But it's just realize, okay, with this person, I've tried, we've been through this a couple times. Let's just avoid that. It's not rejecting a person so much as it's being wise enough that you can avoid these kinds of conflicts. Now, with certain people, it may just mean stay away from them. But again, don't, you don't have to go tell them why you're staying away from them. Just be busy when, they're, when they call. Just find it. That's really what the meaning of the word is, is find a way to excuse yourself. Find a, and, and that way, if you realize that a lot of people are avoiding you, Maybe you'll figure out why, especially right after we teach on this passage. But, but that's what he's saying. Your life is too valuable, and showing God's grace is too important for you to spend your life fighting with morons and, and, and just acting like one yourself, trying to win over someone who... You, you can go three hours, you win the argument, and the next day they, act, they think they won or they completely forgot about it, or now it's a different little issue, it's a little bit different, and now they want to go through it all again. He goes, just dodge that kind of a thing. Knowing that such a person is warped, and that's a good literal translation of it, There's, they're twisted to their foundation, and they're sinning, being self-condemned. People who are divisive should be just left to their own devices. And eventually, they'll realize man, it's getting lonely around here. And they'll start to figure out, I wonder if it's because I fight with everyone I know. And, and so he goes, don't worry. You don't need to condemn them. You don't need to point it out to them. You don't need to fix them. Just let them do what they're going to do and don't let it get to you and don't get dragged into that level of conversation. And um, he says, they're twisted. 
and pray for them that God will help them to be untwisted. But part of it is their own sin, their own choosing, and that's between them and the Lord. And then he says, finally, when I send Artemis, who we know nothing about, um, he's not mentioned anywhere else, to you, or Tychicus, we know a lot about Tychicus, he traveled with Paul, pastored and taught, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. So Paul was either sending Artemis or Tychicus to take over pastoring the church in Crete so that Titus could then come and be with Paul, either temporarily or permanently. We don't know. Paul was heading to Nicopolis, which as near as we can tell, it was a little city that was on the coast, Mediterranean coast of Greece. And with his health, he just was trying to go somewhere that was warm, no doubt, and relaxing. And he's going to spend the winter there. Then send, send Zenus the lawyer, who we know nothing about, and Apollos, who we know a lot about, was a great preacher, on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. Zenus and Apollos, and they would have had great conversations. You get a lawyer with an orator. I mean, that would have been cool. I would have loved to have looked in on these guys. But they're probably the ones that he was sending with this letter to Crete, to Titus. And then he says, send them on their way. And the implication is, help them out, help support them so they can go on and do what they need to do. And let our people also learn to maintain good works. He can't help but come back to it again. To meet urgent needs. In other words, to be, again, ready to help where it's, where it's needed. To be willing to save and have discipline to do that. In order that they may not be unfruitful. Some of the best fruit of your life is going to come because you're ready. <laughs> because because you're prepared for it. You know, and there are opportunities everywhere, but but so often and there are a lot of little sayings that talk about about the fact that that preparation is actually the best way to get lucky. Is to be ready, then when it happens, boom, you're ready. So he goes, once again, remind them of that so that they'll be fruitful. So that good things will come out of their lives. And then he says, everybody with me, greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Good stuff. Great. I love this book. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And there is something in this third chapter of Titus for every one of us every day of our lives. Paul was so practical. You gave him this way of laying out what matters and we're so thankful that you recorded this, you allowed this to be preserved, and that we have it to this day as a testimony of what the Christian life ought to really be like, how change happens, and what we should avoid, what's stupid and wasteful. And so, Lord, we just thank you for this awesome book for the Bible, for your word, and for this particular part of it and this little personal letter from Paul to Titus. And we thank you for this evening. I thank you for all the people who've chosen to spend their Wednesday night um, hearing your word and, and fellowshipping with your people. God, I pray that the time that we've spent here tonight would be rewarded in great fruitfulness as we begin to understand more your grace 
and as we begin to make the changes in our lives that will allow us to be more fruitful. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.